I'm Dr. Tim Sagers, and this is Captive Health Presents Healthcare Insights. Today, we'll be sitting down with Dr. Luke Hansen. Dr. Hansen received his Doctor of Psychology degree from the University of Illinois School of Psychology in Chicago before completing his postdoctoral work at the University of Iowa Carver School of Medicine. He has served as an adjunct professor for many institutions of higher learning and is currently providing professional services at the Mercy Regional Back and Spine Pain Clinic and General Psychiatry Clinics. In today's conversation, we discuss the complexity of chronic pain, the high correlation of mood disorders with chronic pain, and we explore ways for patients to better communicate with doctors about their pain. I've known Luke professionally for many years, and I hope you get as much value out of this interview as I did. With that, let's talk better health with Dr. Hansen. Before we dig in with Luke, I think it would be useful to perhaps set the table a bit by talking a little bit about the scope of the chronic pain problem and perhaps establish a couple of definitions to kind of guide our conversation. So as you know, Luke, uh, chronic pain is a big deal. It's one of the most common health problems in the United States. In fact, it's one of the most common reasons people come to see doctors like me every day because of some type of pain. Um, and it's, it's really, really, really become a, a epidemic yep. per se. Uh, 21% of American adults live with some form of chronic pain and 7% experience high impact chronic pain, which is often used as a term to describe people who experience pain that limits their everyday life, their work, their fun, their play, that kind of thing. Um, and if you think about that in sheer numbers, it represents about 50 million and 17 million Americans respectively, a really big deal. And I think it's, I think it's hard for people that don't live with pain to understand how big of a problem this is. But if you compare that to other diseases, for instance, if you look at the incidence of chronic pain, it's about 52 people per, for every thousand patients in the United States. Diabetes is only seven. Yeah. High blood pressure is 45 because a lot of that, but it's, it's easy to take care of. And even depression is only about 16 cases per thousand. So it's, it's a really, really big deal. And if you think about the cost of chronic pain, which I think it's probably really difficult to put a finger on that, but most most experts would put the cost of chronic pain around seven hundred billion dollars a year in direct and indirect spending, and that's everything from direct medical costs, lost wages, lost productivity, and all the things that employers experience with poor productivity, absenteeism, right. presenteeism, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really a big deal, and I think it's it's really hard to even understand what that means. But to put it in even broader context. That is more costly than heart disease and cancer together. Um, I mean, yeah. It's a really, really big deal. And I think you and I sitting here and our producer, Logan, on the other end of the, the earphones, and all of our listeners have dealt with pain at one time or another. Um, and I, I think it's really important, and we're going to talk a little bit about definitions because we're going to try to focus our conversation today on chronic pain. Um, not, hey, I hit my thumb with a hammer and it hurt for a couple hours. Not, hey, I burnt my finger and it hurt for a couple hours. Right. But pain that's persistent and uh, more long-lasting. Um, I think the other thing to talk about is the complexity of pain. Um, and I think we'll get into this a little bit today. But this this isn't just about, hey, there's something that hurts. Let's make it better. It's really complex. And I think we'll spend a, quite a bit of time talking about that today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this because I... Luke and I had a chance to talk before we recorded today. And uh, as a doctor's practice 20 years, I still don't think I manage pain well. Um, and we've gotten different advice from the year from experts and thought leaders in this field about, hey, we got to be more aggressive with pain. We got to be less aggressive with pain. And then came along the whole opioid overprescribing 
uh, phase. And so I think all of us are struggling to understand the best way to manage uh, this type of chronic pain. And so I'm really excited. I think we're all going to learn a lot from you today. And so uh, perhaps to start our conversation, Luke, if I want to just share a clinical story or a, sure. a history or a vignette with you. And I think... Um, I think when I start talking, I'll probably see a smile because you'll be like, "Hey, I talked to five of those people last week." But, and <laughs> this is possibly. this is a this is kind of a clinical story I hear a lot in my practice. Um, so let's say we have a middle-aged person, maybe a 45, 50-year-old person uh, with chronic back and shoulder pain for years. Uh, maybe they had a minor back injury 10 years ago. They've seen various doctors. They've been to the ER and the urgent care for their pain. They've had back injections, been to the therapist, used medications been off and on pain medicine at various mm -hmm. times, had an MRI, and now maybe even they're using some marijuana edibles to help the pain. Right. Um, but they still hurt. They can't do what they want to do. They're missing work. They're flying through their FMLA benefit time, and they're back again to try to mm -hmm. get some change in this plan. Um, so as I explain that patient, would you agree that that's a chronic pain patient? <laughs> Absolutely. I would add to that probably a bit sleep deprived, uh, maybe struggling uh, financially as a result of it affecting work attendance or ability to work. Uh, you, it just starts to uh, kind of erode all areas of one's life, uh, the, uh, not just physically, but emotionally, behaviorally, socially. Um, as I mentioned, financially, even spiritually, kind of like, why me? Why am I having to, to deal with this? So it is definitely a very uh, complex um, uh, condition that has uh, often, uh, most often, in my opinion, a number of different factors uh, involved. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you think about all the influential or ideological factors of chronic pain, that explains why we don't have a pill for it yet. Right. <laughs> or exactly. vaccine for it, right. that kind of thing, right. because it is so complex. I think it's important to the patient we just described. Can you talk a little bit about, to help the listeners understand, what separates chronic pain from just the everyday pain we have? I mean, I think yep. people understand that chronic means long term or it right. lasts a long time, maybe forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what are the differences, maybe anatomically or physically or from a scientific standpoint? What, what makes that kind of pain different? Well, I think you may have mentioned in your introduction that uh, on a very basic level that kind of the definition of uh, pain that's persisting past three or to, to six months. But um, uh, with uh, that said, outside of that, it, it's uh, typically those individuals struggling with chronic pain. Um, it's it's um, gone beyond uh, just some structural damage or an injury or tissue damage. Uh, oftentimes, uh, in fact, you may see uh, that those um, there's evidence, medical evidence, that those things have have healed. Oftentimes, but this pain uh, persists uh, due to, as I mentioned, a variety of of issues. Most notably, uh, would be in a lot of these cases, um, the nervous system starts to get involved the longer the pain persists. So at first, if it's what we call that nociceptive pain due to an injury or repetitive movement and, and things have gone wrong, uh, it uh, it will. Uh, that's that's more of that acute type of pain. But but if it persists past that uh, and that nervous system gets involved, that's when um, it is chronic and and really hard uh, to shake and, and get a handle on. Like you said, all of those different 
approaches have typically been tried by the time someone finds their way to me and uh, kind of helping them to understand what uh, the ro- role the nervous system might be playing uh, becomes very important at that point in time. And what I mean by that is it's, um, there's evidence um, that uh, after we've experienced pain, uh, three, six months, or maybe even sooner, that other systems of the brain become involved essentially. Then it's in just that pain processing center, so to speak. The limbic system gets involved with these these areas of the brain that are um, related to emotional regulation, that type of thing. And it's uh, again, it's it's kind of like just like pain is supposed to protect our body. These other systems are jumping in as well because okay, our 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 nervous system is overloaded, and the typical system has not worked to relieve pain. Interventions that have been tried have not brought relief, so it's all hands on deck. And, uh, and uh, I, I kind of have used the analogy sometimes of uh, COVID, for example, when, when COVID was at its worst, even though I work outpatient as a psychologist, don't have any clue how to be a nurse. They were asking us to come in when we could to, to help uh, on the floors, get nurses or uh, whoever we could help, snacks or, you know, just kind of keep things running. Uh, to try to uh, to uh, to help matters, but then uh, you know when that uh, when that is no longer uh, needed. If I was just to hang out and linger around, uh, I'd start being in the way and not serving a very become a nuisance, right? Because, right, <laughs> yeah. a very good purpose. But the what happens is that so the pain, the pain, uh, whatever tissue damage or injury ha- ha- has healed, if that has been paired with you know, uh, the emotional distress, we know that it is more likely for the nervous system to get involved and in, in develop into what we call more neuroplastic pain, neuropathic pain, uh, if there is a lot of emotional distress during healing or during onset of pain, as well as fear of movement uh, is another high correlating factor. And you think about it, that's a lot of pain situations, you know, that... Sure. that even if you sometimes you, you are injured and the injury itself is incredibly, you know, it was a car accident, uh, you name it. Uh, but even if it developed fairly, uh, you know, untraumatically, if that's a word, uh, it, it can still have that potential to be emotionally distressful, of course. You know, I woke up and all, I just I could hardly get out of bed. My back was killing me. It wasn't such a traumatic onset. But when you then go months I, we tried this, we tried that, uh, surgery, physical therapy, medication, and nothing's working. The, that The panic can really start to set in. So even when it's not a traumatic injury, there's still that potential for that. And then also, even if it's not a fear of movement, a lot of times we're encouraged not to move or don't put weight on that. <laughs> so the, uh, the longer that goes on, the more likely that nervous system uh, gets involved and those emotional components get involved. And then even when you... Uh, take away that the source where it started, the, the disc issue or whatever it was, uh, now you see that that limbic system or the emotional centers of the brain are contributing to sending off those pain messages a lot of times. So people will uh, notice that when they're stressed or anxious or upset that their pain flares. And that's, what's, that's uh, a lot of times at least in my opinion, a, a good portion of what's going on for a number of patients with chronic pain. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And as somebody who lives with back pain and has had back surgery, I notice when I'm stressed or overwhelmed, 
Mm -hmm. I hurt. Right. Right. <laughs> so I think, you know, no matter how you think about it or how you think you control your pain, it's, it's, it's real. And, and it, it brings me to a couple of questions I get from patients a lot. Um, people do their research on the internet and they talk to their friends and neighbors and their cousin who's a nurse in Chicago and they get information. And one thing I hear from patients a lot is, um, one that pain is a learned behavior. Um, which I take issue with because I don't, I don't think pain is a behavior per se. I think it's a response. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I think, I, th I think patients are scratching the surface a bit there because our brain kind of does learn to respond in a different way. Correct. I mean, yes, I hit my finger with the hammer six months ago, but I really, that's healed. That's gone. And those signals are not normal anymore. And so, um, you know, I th and I think patients, because I've had literally had patients ask me, how do I unlearn pain? And I'll say, what do you mean? Right. Well, I, people have yeah. told me this is learned. And so can I think that's... Yeah, I, I don't really love that term either, but I do like, I, I hear what you're saying. Maybe it's scratching the surface. I uh, I think to me, usually when we learn, we, we, I guess not always, but a lot of times we're setting out to learn or somewhat conscious of that. And this is something more that's going on kind of... Uh, uh, more in a classical conditioning uh, sense where um, a lot of people perhaps have heard of Pavlov's dogs and, and uh, uh, he was a German scientist way back when that uh, uh, coined the, the term or the idea of, of classical conditioning where he simply paired uh, uh, the sound of a bell with food uh, and then measured uh, the saliva of the dogs that uh, see how much they drooled when, uh, when uh, they were either you know presented with the food, the bell, and it, when he paired those two together over time, he found out that over time he could remove that food and just sound that bell, and that saliva would just start coming, and just like uh, that, that uh, can kind of occur with pain essentially again when the emotional. Uh, feelings attached to pain, the fear, the danger, uh, that even when you take away the pain or the food, uh, the, the, uh, the, you still get the same response. I mean, that saliva wasn't psychological or magical. It was just every bit as real as the pain that people experience, even when maybe the initial source of it wasn't. So our, our nervous system, so to speak, has maybe learned, you know, that, that, this emotion means pain or this experience or this cue or this memory or uh, uh, in that sense, but it, it uh, to simply, you know, unlearn, we, we use um, a term and, and maybe it sounds like semantics, but re reprocessing, learning to slowly reprocess where you, first of all, just uh, uh, my goal with patients is to try to help them understand kind of the neuroscience behind it because it can come across to them often as though, well, you just have to learn to, you learn, know, to, live to learn to live with it or yeah. learn to, you know, just mind over matter. It's all psychological, that kind of thing. But understanding the neuroscience behind it, ways in which we can just pr start practicing soothing our n nervous system uh, more consistently. And then, as uncomfortable as it might seem, and uh, slowly and gradually kind of turning our attention to the pain because, of, our, our, of course, our natural reaction is get, me, get this away from me. <laughs> practice sitting with it, uh, exploring it more, you know, kind of from this uh, curious versus judgmental standpoint, uh, uh, which I try to be delicate with, you know, uh, just talking to somebody with chronic pain, you know, like, well, I'm sure they want to say, well, here, let me hit you in the toe with this hammer and then 
you be curious about it, you know, <laughs> but, but that, you know, that, that, that's the goal ultimately that, uh, we, we get better at, at sitting with that. And when it becomes too much, which it most likely will, we turn our direction back to these different techniques to, to soothe the, the nervous system, relaxation, mindfulness uh, training, those types of things. And then slowly but surely, we, we often have a lot of luck in, in getting people's uh, uh, nervous system kind of rewired to some degree or less reactive uh, right. uh, to, to pain, uh, so to speak. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I want to dig into those things a little more. Before we do, um, we've talked about how complex this is. This is not a simple problem. You can't just take a pill or get a shot or do an x-ray and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and having said that, I wonder if you could elaborate a little more so the listeners can think more about their own pain and these other factors that really play a role. Not Maybe not propagating pain, but maintaining chronic pain or the things that aggravate chronic pain. Um, and these are often not physical things or not things that directly touch our health. Can you talk a little bit about that? The the things that uh, kind of continue to to keep the pain yeah. going. Yeah, the yeah. things that we don't. I, I think even doctors are really bad at understanding all the the different things that touch chronic pain in our patients, whether it be stress or um, you know emotional things. Uh, people are often in abusive situations. Right. Uh, a big one is smoking that we don't think about. But right. could you? Yeah, well, and and I guess I would, uh, I hope I don't get too far off track here, but I think a lot of times it starts with just the treatment that's um, sought initially. And and I'm not knocking that treatment or saying that it's not appropriate, but medication or other interventions that uh, a lot of times um, those well-meaning interventions can, can come maybe with uh, complications or, or are more just, um, Band-aids for things uh, and don't really address the issue. You know, medic, uh, pain medication, uh, for example, especially opioids, which I'm not opposed to uh, uh, in a lot of cases, but that um, a lot of research shows that about the 18-month mark, a lot of those meds plateau, but that I think people um, feel like, well, one, it may have helped them a bit initially, uh, but that... Uh, even though over time, they'll, despite increased doses, they'll, they'll say, I don't feel like it's helping, it's not helping, they'll still be very reluctant to stop because they just assume that if it's this bad now, it's only going to be a thousand times worse if you take me off this sure. kind of a thing. And, and that's often not the case. Uh, um, that, that, that may be a topic we, uh, we can discuss later. But uh, I, I think that, you know, so by then, though, you know, you're – you're 18 months in without having really maybe explored or directed this person to someone that can look at those other factors potentially, uh, like just the amount of um, you know other stressors, emotional distress, being like you said, an abusive situation, a traumatic situation, um, things like uh, smoking or. Uh, um, alcohol use, that's a big one. Like, well, the only way I can fall asleep now is if I, you know, two stiff glasses of whiskey before bed and then, okay, great, you can finally get to sleep, but your quality of sleep stinks and and now is likely contributing more (laughs) to pain because we do so much healing during sleep and and deeper sleep. So I I think a lot of those uh, factors uh, contribute. And just, again, understandably, I think, Everyone, uh, or at least the majority of people, want a quick fix. And providers, we want to give a quick fix. Right. But that 
Um, it's it's just uh, not always that easy, and then it gets uh, um, it's harder for um, people to um, have have the patience to do some of the work we do, and uh, harder for I think uh, primary practice providers or other specialists that don't do what I do. I have the luxury of longer visits and and more regular visits with with patients to sit down and really explore these things more deeply, like how are you sleeping? What patterns are you noticing? You know, why is it happening? You know, uh, why are you flaring so much after your mother-in-law visits? So, you know, uh, right. those types of things, um, there, there can be so much else involved. Yeah, those are good points. I think that, um, and I do feel that overall, People who practice medicine, providers, you know, medical providers don't manage pain real well. And part of it is uh, a function of the system we operate in, right? I mean, right. we have a few minutes with a patient. It's path of least resistance. Right, you know? right. And, and patients own some of that as well as far as everyone wants Amazon, right? They want it now. Right, right. They want yeah. it fixed today, that kind of thing. It's yeah. just not how it works. Yeah. And sometimes, again, it, it, if we're in those acute pain cases, take, you know, the pain meds for a couple of weeks while I'm healing up from something and I'm good to go and, and life goes on. So certainly those those interventions are important or during setbacks for even someone with chronic pain, but the, they can also just uh, kind of mask other things that might be going on. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And I, I you know, we have seen uh, talking about opioids or pain medicine, you know, the last couple of years, opioid prescriptions are down 40 percent. So that messaging has gotten across. There's been some big changes. We track them better. We control prescriptions more. There's some new evidence out recently that the CDC and other organizations think maybe we should be a little more liberal again in some of that medication prescribing. So as a provider, it's really frustrating because we get, every year it yeah. seems like we get different advice no. about, about how to prescribe or what to prescribe. But the bottom line, unfortunately, is study after study after study comes out and says there's no role for narcotics or pain medicine and long-term pain. It's great yeah. for people with terminal disease. It's great for people with a fracture. But, you know, giving somebody a pain medicine for six months, just there's just no data out there right. I know that right. supports doing it. But patients seek it out. Doctors uh, often seek the path at least. Absolutely. Well, and I think to be fair to providers and uh, and patients, uh, while I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to the efforts to get the opioid crisis under control and manage these things, it didn't come with, here are these great alternatives, right, right. you know? It's like, yeah. you know, that the one, you know, health provider uh, facility in the Northeast, I will say that I'm aware of, uh, I received feedback from multiple patients that just, hey, they just told me that uh, unless I have cancer or broken bone, no more meds, you know? And I've got feedback from not just patients, but but uh, providers from that, that they were not happy with that, you know, that, uh, you know, okay, great. When now they won't overdose, but their blood pressure sky high because their pain's out of control, th those types of things. It's just, um, it's complicated issues. So that's why, I, you know, try to be clear that I, they have their place, the, but that, um, it's, it's just a, a small part of the puzzle and also something that's more effective in those acute, situations or during acute exacerbations of, of chronic pain. Yeah, I agree. And I, th I think we're slowly getting there. It's going to yeah, take some time. Yeah. but And I do, I want to talk about some other treatment options. Um, before we get to that, though, can you talk a little bit about how much in your practice you see the role of, of behavioral health or mental illness 
um, you know, the, the arrival of the disease of fibromyalgia on the scene um, many years ago as, as the scientific establishment tried to understand what fibromyalgia was. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's many people listening that will identify with this either because they or a loved one or somebody they know has fibromyalgia. Um, you know, early on, many, you know, some of the leading, some of the thought leaders in healthcare said, look, this is not a real thing. Um, right. it's, it's just this weird nebulous mental problem, that kind of thing is complicated by pain. And I think we've learned a lot about it now, but the arrival of a disease like fibromyalgia on the scene really got us thinking about the relationship of behavioral health or mental illness with chronic pain, because very often people with fibromyalgia, they have comorbidities of depression or anxiety mm-hmm. or things like that. And mm-hmm. so in your practice, how often do you see a chronic pain patient that's complicated by those diseases as well? Oh, I, I see quite a few people with not only fibromyalgia, but with just uh, pain that has just kind of expanded or taken off from an original injury. So a lot of times I'll have someone with, you know, maybe, well, it started with my blew my knee out and now I hurt all over. <laughs> they, yeah. Uh, whether it's diagnosed as fibromyalgia or, or what have you. Uh, but a lot of times, uh, again, you see that link when you talk about uh, mental health, uh, much higher rates of sleep difficulties prior to a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, even maybe before they were experiencing pain, they'll often tell you uh, oftentimes uh, experience of trauma. Uh, I had a fella that uh, had a, uh, um, he had like uh H1N1 that never went away, uh, or at least not for a long time, and um, he was end up uh, uh, um, kind of feeling like he had the aches and pains of uh, like a flu, but all the time. Uh, and then on top of that, not long after trying to get that under better control, he had a widowmaker heart attack that he was lucky to survive, very frightening. And then uh, it went from that full body achiness to just his feet, legs were on fire. When I first saw him, he was coming in. It, it's sensory system was just on overload, uh, not just not just uh, uh, the pain, but he would wear sunglasses. And, and this was a tough guy. I mean, outdoorsy guy, uh, uh, you know, you name it. And uh, it just uh, he had gone. Finally, he was uh, considering in his 50s, did not want to, but was considering disability, went to an attorney who at the end of their visit handed him a card, his business card, and he didn't realize that on the back side of that card was the, the attorney's information in Braille. And he, he dropped it like he'd been bit by something, just touching that. That's how on fire <laughs> our nervous system can get. And, and so I, I think for him, there's no doubt he experienced some serious medical issues, but that you add that to the trauma of a near-death heart attack, living with, you know, this upending his work life, which was huge for him. And, and that just really something. And he's a, a really nice success story because he's slowly, you know, learning about it, just learned to, through real pacing, turning down as much stimulation in his sure. life as he could, uh, managing or practicing mindfulness. And in his case, a very religious person, a lot of prayer, reflection, just really making a lot of modifications. Um, he, he made a big difference in his pain. And, of course, he was tried on meds and they recommended a spinal cord stimulator for him at one point, and none of these things were really clicking. And it really just it was uh, his work over time to really uh, kind of 
rewire that that nervous system and how it responds. He just told me a uh, story the other day that he um, was walking and uh, he stepped on the uh, an extension cord outlet and he was he responded really really um, intensely and he's like you know that probably hurt but that shouldn't have hurt that much and he just went back and kind of slowly stepped on it almost kind of like showing his nervous system you know it it's okay you right. know that, that this isn't dangerous this isn't a threat it, it's you know and, and those are the types of things it, it can be hard to kind of describe it or encapsulate it in a short visit like this but those are the the things that we try to work on to help people learn to manage that pain yeah that's a that's a great story to share because i think a lot of people i when i see people with chronic pain and, and often it's complicated by mood disorders or depression anxiety mm-hmm. that kind of thing mm-hmm. or traumatic past or even PTSD and things we see a right. lot now. Um, I always try to remind myself as a, as a doctor that, Hey, they're fighting a battle, you know, right. and I don't yeah. see it and I don't know it. And, and it's, it's, it's our job to kind of dig into that and help them understand it, that because I, it, I do think that until those things are treated or addressed, yeah. it's going to be really hard to fix pain. A- absolutely. Fair. And that could be a delicate balance because yeah. you certainly do have a number of people who uh, I think rightfully a lot of times feel like, Oh, they, again, they, they, they think it's all this. They're telling me it's all the mental health and that if I just, you know, take this antidepressant or do just that, you, you know, and they feel like they, they, he's my doctor's given up on me and sending me to a shrink or that type of thing. And uh, that's that's not the case. Uh, in my experience, there is typically uh, often some, some type of uh, either event or long-time repetitive movement that may often stir up some pain on some level and then it uh, or sleep disturbance for a long time that then kind of just leads to achiness and fatigue like in the case of fibromyalgia that that um, is you know then exacerbated by or, or mental illness maybe have contributed in some way um, or, or stressors trauma but that uh, I try to make sure you know, that to balance that message that that doesn't mean we're saying, you know, you're, you're just having psychological issues. Here. Right. Yeah. 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 I think the worst thing you tell a patient is that it's all in your head. Yeah. Right. I mean, for any problem, right. oh, that, they, that usually yeah. will backfire for both the doctor and but, the patient. Well, sure. yeah, absolutely. And even again, if it is uh, largely nervous system based or mental health related, it's not like, oh, that solves everything. Okay, fine. Thanks for letting me know. I'll just turn that off and, and I'll be <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's all I need to hear. Yeah. Kevin. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that that's good. And I, I, uh, you know, I think, I think most people who pay attention understand that, look, the ways of treating pain in the past don't work real well. I mean, we have good evidence that just throwing medications at people doesn't solve the problem. Um, it's too complex. And, um, you know, speaking of medications, the medications we do use now for chronic pain, um, we do use antidepressants and right. other medications that affect the, the the nervous system. We use right. medicines that affect nerve conduction and things mm-hmm. like that. But right. for the most part, um, that's probably never going to be the answer for chronic pain per se. Um, and with that in mind, you've talked a little bit about mindfulness. You gave examples of where people use meditation, uh, prayer, that kind of thing for those, for people that uh, are spiritual and that kind of thing. Um, there are lots of what I call non maybe not non-traditional, but not everyday practice stuff. So use of nerve stimulation, this kind of stuff. There's lots right. of really cool non-medicine things going on. Right, right. Um, I'd like to spend a little time talking a little bit about what you do every day. And that is this non-medicine, 
non-interventional stuff, not invasive. Uh, talk a little more about that, how that works, and because I want I want people listening to know that look, there's it's not just medicine. You don't have to go to the ER again. You don't have to go get shut down by your doctor again. But there's some other options out there to try. Can you just hit on those a little bit? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So uh, you know there are a variety of approaches: um, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation. Uh, approaches, uh, considering, you know, pacing, uh, uh, techniques. Um, there's something now called pain, rep- pain reprocessing therapy, which has a lot of similarities to mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. I think all of those things have in common, first and foremost, kind of uh, spending some time, tr- uh, finding out what's going on with the patient, of course, uh, and, and then, um, uh, giving them that education about uh, what, could or is likely going on, at least on some level, uh, um, with the nervous system having become involved and how addressing that can help to turn down that pain over time. And again, really emphasizing that it is real and we're not just saying, oh, it's it's real to, to you. We consider it real. You know, it's, it's a, um, you know, I, I think of, for example, uh, individuals with schizophrenia that if you look at brain imaging, uh, their auditory processing centers are lighting up uh, when they're hearing voices, just like ours light up when we're having a conversation, that, that's very real. It's not just, oh, yeah, we know it's real to you. Like it, it legitimately, they are hearing things, you know, even though we can't hear them. And that's um, trying to really emphasize that to patients so that they feel understood, but that also uh, they understand how that's going why, on, why that's going on, and, and what we can do over time to, to uh, uh, treat it. So I think regardless of what approach I might be taking, that's what, a part of it from the get-go is just helping them understand. Otherwise, it feels like, you know, uh, if I just jump into here, meditate, and your pain should get better over time, that they're like, you're trying to convince me to put out a forest fire with a squirt gun here, buddy. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. um, so that's a big part of it. Uh, but then, you know, if, uh, you know, it really depends on the per- person, you know, that if it is um, a case of just, you know, uh, the patterns of thought that are coming along, the messages uh, they're sending themselves, um, um, addressing that. Uh, if it is behaviors, you know, that they there's no evidence that it's no longer likely dangerous for them to do something, uh, but that they're still not doing it just for fear of, of causing problems, that type of thing. Uh, starting to approach it more from a gradual kind of behavioral perspective. How can we start trying some of these things? And sometimes there are um, physical therapists, really good physical therapists that are trained in in some kind of these uh, pain conditions that might be related to a trauma or nervous system involvement that can help gradually improve with that as well. Uh, The pain reprocessing therapy is is, uh, kind of similar to what I... Uh, mentioned earlier, a uh, practice of, um, you know, starting to, to first of all, um, you know, um, expose them to, to, uh, mindfulness, meditation, various, uh, progressive muscle relaxation, trying on different efforts to soothe that nervous system, which typically involves something repetitive, uh, that, um, any of those techniques, whether it's breathing, muscle relaxation, they, uh, they all tend to involve something repetitive. That's not, you know, anything new as infants were rocked or, you know, we pay, there's something soothing about repetition and practicing kind of learning to take a passive approach to the thoughts that come through our mind. In this case, my back's killing me or, or whatever else, 
getting them uh, used to practicing those things and, and helping them understand the impact it can have on them, and then starting to kind of intentionally encourage them to turn their attention to that pain on some, de- some degree. Maybe not starting with where it hurts most, but you know, where are you uncomfortable right now you know, or, or that type of thing. And uh, until they start feeling that um, they can sit with that pain a little bit longer. But it, it, I tell people that it's very, it can be similar to physical exercise, that as we do these things, ideally, uh, they will notice some improvement initially that, okay, I'm doing something or that that, that was a little bit relaxing or, or that helped. But often that may not be the case, you know, because it is, uh, uh, it, it, it takes time. Like physical exercise, we go, we might feel good about ourselves that day for getting ourselves to the gym, but we, the long-term benefits come, you know, stamina, strength, if we're going for weight loss, that, that takes time. And it takes time to really uh, rewire the nervous system. Uh, but with time we do see, uh, unfortunately, you know, this is something to do at universities. I can't unfortunately give somebody a brain scan and then have them scan three months later. But They've seen that you, you see so much activity in that uh, um, amygdala, the fight or flight, freeze uh, area of our, our brain in people with trauma, pain, uh, and then with time of practicing these, these techniques that you start to see that blood volume shift and we get a lot more activity going on in that prefrontal cortex, which is more uh, responsible for problem-solving, responding to pain rather than reacting to it, which our nervous system just starts to do automatically, not just to pain, but to everything. Like I mentioned the fellow that was sensitive to light, you you name it, it can all just start going off and we need to kind of slow that down and retrain it a little bit. Yeah, I like that. You know, it makes me think about, we hear a lot about AI and design thinking right now. And that's really what we're talking about, right? We want people, first of all, to understand the problem. And I think a lot of what you mentioned was getting people to understand what their pain is. You know, I use a physical example. Um, when somebody has a heart attack, mm-hmm. we talk about the plaque in their artery that blocked right. the blood flow. Right. We talk about don't smoke and we're giving you medicine for your cholesterol. And we have this really direct mm-hmm. thing like, here's your problem. This is how you fix right. it. And if you do this, it right. won't happen again. Pain's different than that. Yeah. Right? It's much more complex. And I think that's where we get stuck as medical providers sometimes, and even patients, because we've trained them to think about pain like any other disease that's really right. not it's very right. different it's a very right. complex animal yeah so those are those are really really helpful things um it, it, so to kind of wrap up here i i'd love to hear if i said i have 100 people standing outside that have lived with chronic pain and luke i'm going to put you on stage in front of them what's the one thing you tell them all to start with what would be the one place to start or one thing to think about well you know i i guess First of all, I would um, say being open to to just, uh, you know, different possibilities, including, you know, th- that possibility that nervous system has become involved uh, and that uh, um, therefore being open to, to um, uh, those types of interventions or maybe proactively seeking them out. And I think that may also start with uh, being assertive, respectfully assertive with providers, you know, that, that uh, um, letting them know that, you know, hey, this, this doesn't seem to be working. You know, like I said, a lot of times those initial uh, efforts aren't wrong, but, you know, rather than waiting 18 months, or, you know, until you just slowly 
see any effectiveness of opioids or other interventions working. Um, you know, being open to that, also doing kind of your own exploring, paying attention to things like sleep or if I can avoid smoking for a while, does that make a difference? Um, am I experiencing more pain due to, you know, uh, when I eat certain foods that cause a lot of inflammation? Uh, you know, is it really strongly related to stress? Am I having, you know, trauma-related symptoms like intrusive thoughts and nightmares related to something I've experienced, whether it was what led to my pain or not, you know, those types of things. Um, and trying not to be afraid to share those concerns with your pr provider, often the PCP, who's the, the first, you know, gatekeeper uh, there, and, uh, and advocating for, for yourself if you feel like this, this pain is just still not, uh, not something I feel like I can live with very effectively here. So I think that's great advice, and uh, I think there's one thing I would tell any patient every day is nobody will advocate for you the way you do. Right, uh, right. So I think that's really good advice. Um, chronic pain's bad. It's real. It's complex and sometimes hard to treat. But with kind of a what I call multidisciplinary approach, maybe think right. outside the box. Right. Maybe think about doing things that you normally wouldn't do. And really, I think there's a lot of responsibility for the patient to kind of think about you know everything else going on in their life, right. how it impacts the pain and what that might be in right. there. You gave some really good advice there, and that is tell your doctor. Don't mm -hmm. be afraid. Mm -hmm. That's really important information to share. Right. Um, I think that's just outstanding advice. Uh, Luke, I've learned a lot today. This has been awesome. Uh, I think thank our you. listeners are going to get a lot out of it, too. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for Your expertise me. and your experiences. Thanks for being part of Captive Health Presents. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.